just who do you think you are? Uh, usually that question is asked by an authority figure uh, or someone of a, when someone of a lesser rank or less, less power or less importance uh, steps out of line or challenges them in some way, probably the most common place to hear the phrase, just who do you think you are, uh, is by a frustrated parent with a strong-willed child. Uh, you'll hear that question asked. Uh, you know, they're pushing them to the limit and they'll fire that back. Just who do you think you are? It's usually you're getting close to the line at that point. But it's a question that doesn't just apply to having a bad attitude with authority figures. Uh, it's also a question that's, I think, very important to think about with regard to our faith story. And without using these exact words, Jesus doesn't say just who do you think you are. It's what Jesus was asking his listeners in a parable that we're going to take a look at this morning. And I think it's a question that we need to be asking ourselves on a regular basis. But before we read this parable itself and, and really dive into our text, we need to understand something about the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are known as the Gospels in the New Testament, the first four books of the New Testament. And they tell the story of Jesus. They tell the story of the good news. Gospel uh, is literally means the good news. Uh, and it's the good news that God has for us. And we they're meant to be read. The Gospels are meant to be read backwards. And you may say, wait a minute, what? You mean I've been doing it wrong all these years? I've been st starting in chapter one and reading through to the end. Don't panic. Uh, here's what I mean when I say the Gospels are meant to be read backwards. When you start reading each one of the Gospel accounts, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have different takes on the same Gospel message. And that's why we have four different uh, accounts of the Gospel. But when you start reading each one of them, you already know how it ends. Every one of the gospel accounts, you already know how it ends. They end with the death and the resurrection of Jesus to provide forgiveness for our sin and to restore us to right relationship with God. And we should have that ending in our minds with every verse that we read. And this isn't my idea. I, I didn't come up with this. This is the way the gospel writers, they want to be read. They want to be understood in this way. Matthew says in his first chapter, in Matthew 1, verse 21, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So very clearly, from the first chapter of Matthew, he is starting with the end in mind that Jesus has come to restore us, to save us. He's not coming just to teach sinners, but to save sinners by his death and resurrection. Mark is probably the most incredible example because of his 16 chapters, the shortest of all the gospel accounts, almost half of them deal with the last week of Jesus' life. You want to talk about focusing on the end. Almost half of Mark's writing focuses on the last week, that passion week of Jesus' life. Not exactly your ordinary bi biography uh, when it's that weighted towards the end. Luke begins with the great word from the angel to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. He says, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. He's the Messiah. 
And the Apostle John tells us in his first chapter that John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So all of the gospel writers have this incredible focus on the end, how things are going to turn out, what Jesus came to accomplish. Another way to say it is this, the cross of Jesus, where, where he took our place, where he carried our sins and completed his redemptive work on the cross. And obviously we're approaching Easter. Uh, we're going to be spending some time talking about what that means for us in a, in a, in a really deep way. Uh, where Jesus completed his redemptive work, the cross cast this long shadow back over every verse in the Gospels. Every verse is meant to be read under the shadow of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And you know, from the very beginning, the Gospels want us to know how the story ends. It ends with Jesus dying for the forgiveness of our sins and rising again as the Lord of the universe and that is the way to understand every paragraph, every sentence, every word in the Gospels. Jesus' commandments are not just snippets of wisdom for how to raise your family or how to succeed in business or how to feel good about yourself. That's not the point of Jesus' teaching. Instead, as Jesus instructs, they are descriptions of how new human beings live who have been born again by God's Spirit. They've seen the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ, have recognized the hopeless condition that we live in, of sin that we are in, and have ceased to trust in anything from ourselves at all for acceptance from God. And we've surrendered completely to Jesus. And if the Gospels have not had that impact, have not had that effect on you yet, you are at best misunderstanding and at worst misusing all the commandments of Jesus because we need to approach all of them through that lens. We need to see them through that lens of what Jesus has done for us. And that brings us today to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, and this parable that we're going to look at today. And we find Jesus looking right into the eyes of people who are incredibly religious, but still do not understand and haven't yet experienced what I just described to you. They haven't had that wake-up call. They haven't had that self-realization yet. They talk nonstop about God, but don't know how to be right with God. That describes a lot of people in the church today. There are tons of people that fill churches that are probably sitting in churches right now all across America who can talk about God all the time, maybe even make Facebook posts about God, but don't know how to be right with God. They don't know what that everything written about God in the Old Testament was pointing to a Redeemer, to a Savior, to a sacrifice, the one on whom their sins would be laid and through whom they could become what the Bible calls the righteousness of God. These people that Jesus was talking to, understood the history. They knew it backwards and forwards, but they didn't understand that it was brought to completion in Jesus and why they needed that. Jesus came to reveal it all, but these people tripped over their own pride and their own misunderstanding. And Paul wrote about people like this in his letter to the Roman church. In Romans chapter 10, verse 3, he said, for they don't understand God's way 
of making people right with himself, of reconciling people. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. And that was true of the Pharisees and other uh, Jews of, of the day. It's true of people today who think that they can somehow earn their way back to God, that they can do enough right things to make up for all the bad things that they've done and try to bury all the bad things underneath a pile of good stuff and hope that God just looks at the good stuff or some kind of interpret it as this cosmic scale in heaven that God has and on one side he piles all the bad things that you've done and on the other side he piles all the good things and hopefully at the end of your life the good things outweigh the bad things and he's going to let you into heaven because you've got more good things than bad. But that is a complete misunderstanding of God's righteousness and God's justice and how that should apply to our lives. They knew about God. They knew about grace. They knew about righteousness, but they still missed it. They did not understand that justification takes place by faith alone on the basis of Jesus alone. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. So let's read this parable through with the understanding that it is completed and fulfilled in the cross. When we have that shadow that is cast back across this parable, it helps us to understand that this final obedience of Jesus in giving his life for our salvation, that has to be the lens through which we view all of his teachings. So let's look at it. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. <clears throat> then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. And that's another downside of trusting in your own righteousness. It causes you to look down on other people. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers, I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And you can tell by the way this parable kind of comes to a close in verse 14, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. We see that the main point of this parable is about how to be justified and also how not to be justified. Now, justified just is kind of a, a, uh, a legal term. That means to be made right. We are made right. To move from sinfulness to righteousness in God's sight. That's what justified, the theological term justified, means. We've moved from sinfulness to righteousness. We've been made right before God. And of course, the story here, that parable, is incomplete because Jesus had not finished his work yet when he told this story. He had not died for our sins and not been raised for our salvation. So we're not seeing the whole story laid out of how we are justified before God. But instead, we're given one key 
ingredient, a prerequisite in how justification is possible. We're going to talk about that, but first, I want you to notice something from the very beginning of this parable that's very easy to miss in this story that Jesus tells, but it's a major contributor to the health of God's people and their relationship to one another. And at the beginning, in Luke 18, uh, verse 9, it says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Now, I want you to read this. It's very, and it's one word that makes the difference. It does not say that Jesus told this story about some who had great confidence in their own righteousness. No, what does it say? It says that Jesus told this story to them. He was looking them in the eye and telling them that they were self-righteous, that they struggled. And I want you to get this. Jesus loved people enough to talk to them about their faults instead of about their faults to others. Jesus loved people enough to talk to them about their faults instead of about their faults to others. And I would contend that way too many Christians today, instead of talking to other people or to someone about a problem they see in their life, they talk about that problem they see in someone's life to other people. And so Trilogy, let's not be that kind of church. I, I want to be the church that Jesus example that he said here. Don't talk about people's faults or mistakes. Talk to them about areas where they could grow. Care enough about your brothers and sisters in Christ to go to them if you see something that's out of line. Let them know that you're, you're praying for them. Let them know that you've seen something that maybe the Holy Spirit has just kind of pushed you in that direction and say, hey, I need, I need to share this with you because uh, I, I wouldn't be honoring God if I didn't and I wouldn't be loving you if I didn't. It's easy and self-inflating to talk about people. It's hard and most often humbling to talk to people. When you're talking about them, they can't correct you. They can't criticize you. They can't fire back. So don't hide behind the walls of gossip and talk about people's faults without going to them. Now, immediately people's minds are racing like, man, who's got a gossip problem? Who's been talking that Pastor Jeff is bringing this up? Now, this is called teaching what scripture reveals as you're, as you're going through a passage. So don't worry, we don't have a gossip problem at Trilogy. But hey, if God shows it in the word, we need to hear it and we need to obey it. Um, but let's love one another enough to talk to each other when we see issues in people's lives. When you know a brother or sister is caught tight in the grip of some sinful struggle or behavior, check yourself first, you know, take the log out of your eye, as Jesus said, and then go to them and try to help them. That's what God's people are supposed to do for one another. You know, maybe tell them a parable. That's what Jesus did. Um, probably not. You know, Jesus was a master to, to just go to them and, and just let them know what God is telling you to share. But let's look at the problem now that Jesus was dealing with here in Luke 18. So once again, verse 9, Then Jesus told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. So here is what you do not want to do. Trust in yourself that you are righteous. And we really need to figure out clearly here 
what the problem was. What were these people doing? What were they not doing? What was wrong with their hearts? Jesus is pretty clear that this is a problem. And if we're going to avoid this, we need to see what Jesus is so against here. And there are three things we need to see about this person that Jesus is describing who had great confidence in their own righteousness. Okay, there's three different things that we need to note. The first thing we see is that his righteousness was moral. The second is that his righteousness is religious. And the third thing is he believed his righteousness is a gift from God. So those are three things we're going to look at. Now on the surface, that does not really seem to be a problem, does it? A moral, religious person who thanks God for his righteousness that they live out. At, at first glance, that looks pretty solid. But let's look a little deeper. Let's dig a little bit. In verses 10 and 11, we see his moral righteousness described. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. Here we go. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like him, not like that tax collector. Now notice how the Pharisee describes his righteousness. I'm not like other people. In other words, he says, I am financially honest. I'm not a cheater. I live above reproach. I'm not a sinner. And I stay faithful to my wife. I'm not an adulterer. So he's, he's kind of talking about all these things that he's doing right. He's living according to the law. He's seeing these things play out in his own life that he's supposed to do. And that's what I mean by a moral righteousness. He was a morally upright, what we would consider to be a good man. The Pharisee is not a bad dude as far as what we expect of someone who is following God should act like. He's living it out. Uh, he kept the commandments just like the rich, run, rich young ruler. That's tough to say fast. He kept the commandments just like the rich young ruler that we would read about just 10 verses later in the same chapter. We read about the rich young ruler. And he said the same thing to Jesus. I've kept all the commandments. And this Pharisee is praying this prayer. Hey, I keep all the commandments. So I am in good shape. But here's the problem. We were never meant to compare ourselves to one another because other people are not the standard that you are going to be held to. Now hear this because this is the gospel. This is, this is one of the most important things you will ever hear. We are never meant to compare ourselves to one another because other people are not the standard that you will be held to. There are plenty of people in the world that I would probably compare pretty favorably to. But there are quite a few that I couldn't hold a candle to with regard to righteous living and what they've accomplished for God. And, and so the thing is, comparing yourselves to other people is a moving target. You never know if you're right or not. But none of it matters anyway. Because the Bible tells us there is only one standard. And none of us can meet that standard. Romans 3.23 says, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. His standard is perfection. His standard is holiness. His standard is perfect purity. And not one of us can measure up to that standard. Uh, we can't hope to meet it. And that's why the Pharisee in this parable is missing it completely. 
because he thinks the righteousness that he has, even if it was given to him by God, is enough. The second thing we see is the Pharisees' righteousness was religious. Luke 18, 12, I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. And so what the Pharisee is describing here are religious acts, ceremonial acts, fasting and tithing. Uh, they relate to these spiritual disciplines before God and not so much how you treat other people. Okay, It's not about how you treat other people. It's not about... Uh, your relationship with one another, these are the spiritual disciplines and they relate specifically to him. These are religious acts. Uh, he was a morally upright and a religiously devout man. Sounds pretty good so far. There's nothing wrong with these behaviors. In fact, they're good things that Jesus himself teaches that we should do. We need to fast. We need to be generous givers. But we can't look to those things to reconcile us to God because they can't. There are plenty of people today who believe they're in good standing with God because they go to church or because they give to a Christian charity or they give to a church uh, or because they read the Bible. And here's the thing they miss. Religious activity is never a substitute for real relationship. Religious activity, although a good idea, is never a substitute for real relationship. And a real relationship with Jesus is the only thing that matters. That's it. A third thing, he believed that his righteousness was a gift from God. In verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer, I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers, I'm certainly not like that tax collector. He is thanking God for his righteousness. He gives God the credit for making him upright and devout like he is. He thanks God for making him this way and for giving him the ability to live the way he lives. That's why he says, I thank you, God. He's at least giving you know, credit to God for this. But the problem is not whether the man himself has produced this righteousness that he has or whether God has produced it in him. The problem is, is that he trusts in it to save him. The problem is that he trusts this righteousness to make him right before God. In verse 9, it tells us that Jesus told the parable to people who had great confidence in their righteousness. This Pharisee has great confidence in his righteousness that it will be enough. Now make sure you see what this is saying. It's not saying that he's trusting in himself to make himself righteous, that he's got this huge pride issue. Uh, no, he says explicitly, explicitly that he is thanking God that he is righteous. He's not trusting in himself to make himself righteous. He's trusting in himself that he is righteous with the righteousness that God has worked in him. So even though it may not be prideful per se, it's misplaced. That's what he's trusting and that doesn't seem bad on the surface, but here's the difference. And even though it may seem small, the difference is massive when it comes to our faith. His mistake was that he trusted in this God-produced righteousness. He trusts that for justification. And when it came to justification, once again, how to be made right with God, 
This man was trusting in the wrong thing. He was looking at the wrong person and the wrong righteousness. Instead of looking at himself and his righteousness, he needed to be looking to Jesus and his righteousness. And that difference is everything. We need to trust in Jesus and his righteousness. Because when we surrender our lives to Christ, when we accept Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, and we accept the work that he has done on the cross as the answer, that he was the sacrifice that paid for our sin, we are trusting in his sacrifice, in his righteousness, and in him. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. Instead, he sees the righteousness of Christ, which is the only sacrifice that is worthy enough to pay for our sin. So here is the issue. This man was morally upright. He was religiously devout. He believed God had enabled him to be this way. He gave thanks for it. And that is what he looked to and trusted in for his righteousness before God, for his justification. And he was dead wrong. And so are so many people today who think that their works, their goodness, what they have, what they bring to the table, what they can offer God is what we are saved by. Instead, the Bible tells us we are saved by faith alone, by Jesus alone. What Jesus wants us to see here is that how righteous you are or how moral you are or how religious you are or how often you go to church or read the Bible or pray, all of that stuff, they are good things and we need to be doing those things. But they should be the product of a relationship with Jesus, not a substitute for trusting in Jesus. That is not the basis. Those things are not the basis of your justification before God. That is not how you are accepted by and declared righteous by God. And we can say with confidence because we know how the story ends. We can see the shadow of the cross over this parable. We, we see the clear pointer to this end in the way the tax collector is justified before God. So let's keep going. Let's go back to the parable now and read in verses 13 and 14 the tax collector story. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So what did the tax collector do? Uh, we know more than this tax collector did because he hadn't seen Jesus go to the cross yet. We know how God provides righteousness for sinners who are not righteous. This tax collector looked away from himself to God. He trusted in nothing in himself. He trusted in God alone. Unfortunately, we are on the other side of the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. It is in him and through him and by him that we are forgiven, that we have been set free. And we have to trust in Jesus and not in anything that we can do. 
This is the wonderful and powerful good news of the gospel. That is not, it's not about what you can do at all, but instead by trusting Christ alone and all that he did for us and all that he is for us, we are, we are joined with Christ. We are made one with Christ. And because we are in him, what he is counts for us. His righteousness, his morality, his purity is what God considers when he looks at us, when we are in Christ. And if we're not careful, we could say, well, of course, the tax collector looked away from his own righteousness to God for mercy because he had no righteousness of his own. But that's missing the point again. That's playing the comparison game between the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's not about who you are. It's not about what you've done or what you haven't done. It's not about what you can do to make it right. It's all about Jesus. It always has been. So there's no tears in coming to Christ. There's no, well, this guy has an easier time or this guy has a harder time because he had a rough past and this guy had an upbringing in the church. And it doesn't matter because Romans 3 tells us we are all pond scum. Not one of us measures up. Not one of us can make good on the sin that we've done in the past and we all need Jesus. And we come back to the beginning of the message where I presented you with a question that we need to be asking. Who do you think you are? Some of you think you're pretty okay. Some of you may think you're unsalvageable. And neither of those are spiritually healthy opinions to hold because they both focus on us, where we are, what we've done, what we could do to maybe make things better. The focus should always be on Jesus, who he is, what he has done, what he wants to do in us. And as we finish up this morning, I want to read one more passage to us and then we're going to pray. And I want this passage to remind us of who we are in Christ. And if you're not where you need to be, let it remind you of the only one who can bring you back to right standing with God. That we would ask ourselves the question, just who do I think I am? Because Jesus is the only one who can set us free. Let's listen this morning to Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning that you are Lord. And it is only through you that we can be forgiven, that we are set free, that we are redeemed. And Jesus, we look to you today as the only source of salvation. It's not about what we can do. It's not about what we 
have done or will do. Jesus, it is all about you. And yet, Lord, I pray that we would see incredible fruit in our lives, that we would do all those amazing things, not to make ourselves right, but because we are right. We can do those things out of that relationship with you. And so, God, would you birth that in us and, and cause us to do amazing things for you because we have been made right. Lord, I pray for those who maybe they, they've been thinking too highly of themselves and they've been putting their trust in the wrong things. God, would you help them to humble themselves today? And God, that they would make themselves right with you, not through anything they can do, but by surrendering themselves to you. God, I pray for those who maybe have thought that they were damaged goods, they are unsalvageable, that they can't be brought back because they're too far gone. God, I pray that you would break them of their pride. Their pride that says that what I've done is greater than what Jesus has done for me. And Lord, let them take the same action. Let them surrender themselves to you. And God, would you forgive them today and set them free. God, let every one of us rest in our relationship with you and then go out and change the world for you. We thank you, Lord. Uh, for this parable and for the, the teaching that it brings to us about how to live for you and how to be made right. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.